0: Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 37, Mr Lisa Goes to Dubrovnik.
1: Hey hey listeners, I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Bribe who we bribe. Do the trading gap shuffle when we do the trading gap shuffle. And always remember that wonderful word, flag. <laughs> Today, I'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 2, Mr. Lisa Goes to Washington. That first aired in the US on September the 26th, 1991.
0: And I'm going to be telling the story of the Siege of Dubrovnik, a major event in the Croatian War of Independence, part of the wider events of the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. The siege started on October the 1st, 1991, about a week after Mr Lisa goes to Washington first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish
1: exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. So, this aired on September 26th, 1991. But, Gareth, I hear you ask, what was number one in the UK singles chart that week? Is well... This... <laughs> is it still Brian Adams? Yeah, it's not much of a spoiler, really, is oh, it? Um, for our third consecutive episode. <laughs> that is ridiculous. Spanning two seasons, it's Mr Adams again. It appears he was almost a moral guardian at number one, holding back a tide of filth. <laughs> because at number two this week, replacing I'm Too Sexy is... Let's talk about sex. Oh yes. By Salt and Pepper. A band that comprised Salt, Pepper. Seriously, those are the stage names of Cheryl James and Sandra Denton, respectively. Mm-hmm. And DJ Spinderella, which I think is a fantastic <laughs> DJ name. Uh, they were hugely popular and broke a fair few barriers for women in rap, including being the first such act to go gold and platinum, with their million-selling debut album Hot, Cool and Vicious. The band were originally called Super Nature until a mix-up with their song The Showstopper, which featured a line about being the Salt and Pepper MCs, led to a hasty name change when people started requesting that song by Salt and Pepper. Uh. They were arguably bigger in the UK than the US, with Push It. Oh god, that's a good song. <laughs> that is, as the children say, a banger. Uh, and Twist and Shout, and Do You Want Me? all having
0: gone top five before
1: this was released.
0: Mm. I just realised I actually really quite like Salt and Pepper.
1: Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, the song, perhaps obviously, talks... about sex. The song, perhaps obviously, talks... about sex. Covering such issues as safe sex and censorship. There was apparently a re-recorded version called Let's Talk About AIDS as well, which further squared up to radio censorship whilst raising awareness of the disease. Okay. They may not have hit the top spot with this over here, but they can look back fondly on number one status in the following countries. Austria, Australia, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland, Portugal, and, yes, Zimbabwe. <laughs> to bring us up to date, the band disbanded in 2002, reformed in 2005, launched a reality show in 2007, and now have a biographical miniseries in the work. They also terminated Spinderella last year, which I can only assume means a sacking rather than a killing, since it Mm. was Spin herself who announced it on Instagram. So there may still be more to come in the salt and Pepper saga. (laughs) The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 12.9, approximately 11.9 viewing households. It was 36th for the week, but only the third highest rated Fox show, behind both Married with Children and In Living Colour a sketch comedy show focusing on then-modern black American subject matter that launched the careers of the Wayans family and Jim Carrey, amongst others. OK. Um, so that's another one we'll have to watch at some stage. Those two and Beverly Hills 90210 to get the, yep. the full, the full flavour. Uh, the production number was 8F01. The credited writer was George Meyer. As we discussed in episode 11, The Crepes of Lothar de Messier. (laughs) But there may well be a lot of people's input in this one, given that it's Al Jean and Mike Reese's debut episode as showrunners. Wikipedia tells me that Jean and Reese were so pressured that they did six to seven rewrites of the script to make it funnier. Yeah. Jean said, one reason for doing all these rewrites is because I kept thinking, it's not good enough. It's not good enough.
0: hmm but it shows, it shows, because it's so polished.
1: Yes. And, spoilers, it's easily good enough. Oh, yeah. Um, I wouldn't necessarily have noticed there was a change of showrunner if I didn't know it myself, and that's probably the best compliment that can be paid. Continuity in chaos.
0: mm mm-hmm.
1: The chalkboard gag is, spitwads are not free speech. <laughs> and the couch gag is, the family sits down, but Homer is sitting on Santa's little helper. But what actually happens? Well... The Simpsons are going to Washington, I already told you that. (laughs) But first they're going to win a million dollars. Or so Homer thinks when he receives a letter about a sweepstake. The cheque turns out to be void when Homer takes it to the bank, as denoted by the words void, void, void written (laughs) upon it. A dejected Homer is unmoved even by the free copy of Reading Digest that accompanied the letter, until his head is turned by a sexist cartoon and he discovers a love of reading just that one specific magazine. Yeah. Even leading him to insist the kids stop watching Troy McClure and Dolores Montenegro in Preacher with a Shovel to hear him read from it.
0: Yeah, that's a weird bit of serendipity there, because I'm going to be talking about Montenegro a little bit for my stuff. Excellent.
1: Within, he finds an essay contest for children of 12 and under, with a fiercely pro-American subject matter, and a prize of an all-expenses-paid trip to Washington. Bart is happy to let Lisa take this one, as he's frankly got no chance or motivation. After a hackneyed false start involving Benjamin Franklin, she takes a bike ride for inspiration and sees a majestic bald eagle, thus fully inspiring her essay, The Roots of Freedom. Homer and Lisa arrive at the Veterans of Popular Wars Hall for the contest. (laughs) just in time to see Nelson's proto-Marga diatribe draw to an incoherent yet rabble-rousing end. The judges are impressed by Lisa's essay, but believe Homer may have helped her write it. After speaking to him for 20 seconds, they not only realise that could not have been the case, but award her extra points for having to cope with Homer as a father. And she wins! (laughs) Aboard the plane, Homer freeloads and barter noise, nearly crashes the plane with his Father Dougal-esque antics in the cockpit. They are chauffeured to their home away from home, the Watergate Hotel, which to television writers is the only hotel in Washington. <laughs> they pass and boo the IRS building, and on arrival Homer is gripped by the modern conveniences. All right, just the shoehorn then, which he describes as like being in the movies. <laughs> the next day we're introduced to Faith Crowley, Reading Digest's patriotism editor to whom Homer enthuses about their Increase Your Word Power section, which he finds really, really, really good.
0: Yeah. Homer's got no perspicacity there at all.
1: No, but he will be getting some. (laughs) And Lisa believes she has found kindred spirits in her competitors. Then the family's VIP passes get them into more of the White House than is feasibly imaginable, including the spot where Nixon bowled back-to-back 300 games (laughs) at Barbara Bush's Bathroom before also checking out the National Air and Space Museum, which looks great, frankly, I'd love to visit that, uh, and a money printing facility, and the Washington Monument, which Marge quietly expresses some ribald views about. <laughs> Lisa is then taken for a photo opportunity with Congressman Bob Arnold, who unbeknownst to her has agreed to a clandestine meeting with a lobbyist who wants to cut down Springfield National Forest, and is willing to bribe to get his way. For now, though, he's making nice for the cameras, but the very next day, Lisa spies him make the exchange at the Winifred Beecher Howe Memorial and destroys her essay in disgust. She heads to the Lincoln Memorial for inspiration, but finding it overcrowded goes instead to the Jefferson Memorial, where his ghost gives out at her over his frustrations at being second choice. Bereft of faith in the system, she sets out to write a tell-all essay for the competition. After a satirical musician, apparently based on a similar fellow in real life named Mark Russell, does a song about the deficit, and later another about the trading gap. Lisa takes the stage and delivers her new essay, Cesspool on the Potomac, (laughs) a stinging critique of the workings of government that calls out Bob Arnold by name. This does not go unnoticed in America's super-efficient government, and within four hours, Arnold has been expelled and become a born-again Christian, and all of that has been published in a newspaper that the family stumble across, restoring Lisa's faith in the system. It is sadly too late for her to rescind cesspool, mm. which does not go down well against the more patriotic opposition in Bubble On, O oh, Melting Pot, Lift High Your Lamp, Green Lady, or eventual winner USA A-OK. okay Whose writer praises Lisa for reminding us all that the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. Mm-hmm. Oh, and Bart catapults that
0: annoying Mark Russell guy to leave the audience happy. <laughs> so yeah, good stuff. Yeah, oh, it's brilliant. It, it's if you told me that this show was show run by different people to all the ones before, I would have believed you because it's it's very very political. This one, without being preachy. Mm. And they, would, they were just able to distill so much into so little. I mean, my favourite little thing is the fact that the hall is called Veterans of Popular Wars. Because, honestly, that says so much about how Americans treat their veterans. Have you ever seen Born on the Fourth of July? You know, if you fought in the Vietnam War, they don't want to hear about it. You fought in the Second World War? Yeah, tell us everything, Granddad. So would you like to hear about some character debuts, Tom? Yes. Barbara Bush!
1: bear with me because it's slim pickings this week Uh, I know we've spoken of her husband's involvement in the Simpsons story but I forget if I've mentioned Barbara Uh, so we'll do that quickly as she actually spoke out about the Simpsons before George Bush's aforementioned speech Mm. Mrs. Bush Mrs. H.W. Bush maybe for clarity Uh, anyway uh, she called the Simpsons the dumbest thing I've ever seen back in 1990 and in response Marge Simpson wrote her a letter dated September 28th, 1990, beginning, Dear First Lady, I recently read your criticism of my family. I was deeply hurt. She goes on to say that she teaches her children always to give people the benefit of the doubt, and that she believes the two of them have a lot in common. Quote, each of us living our lives to serve an exceptional man. Barbara actually replied in writing to Marge Simpson mm-hmm. at the Fox Studios, and here is her letter in full. How kind of you to write. I'm glad you spoke your mind. I foolishly believed you didn't have one. (laughs) I am looking at a picture of you depicted on a plastic cup, with your blue hair filled with pink birds peeking out all over. (laughs) As an aside, I believe that might be the promotional cup for Call of the Simpsons. Evidently, you and your family, Lisa, Homer, Bart and Maggie, are camping out. It is a nice family scene. Clearly, you are setting a good example for the rest of the country. Please forgive a loose tongue. Warmly, Barbara Bush.
0: Oh, that's sweet.
1: Barbara will be seen in The Simpsons again in the legendary installment that is season 7, episode 13, Two Bad Neighbours, in which she is depicted as personable and friendly and forms a friendship with Marge. I would speculate that her letter had more than little to do with that characterisation. <laughs> yep. And we also see Bob Arnold, the congressman, and by the end of the episode, the former congressman, for the state that Springfield is in. <laughs> We know that he becomes a born-again Christian by the end of the episode, but I can't find any reference to him appearing again. Now, I'd always thought he was the politician who caused Congress to vote against the plan to evacuate Springfield in Season
0: 6, Episode 14, Bart's Comet. Oh, yes, by attaching a rider for funding the perverted arts. Yes. Ah, yeah, he does look like him, doesn't he? Um, I
1: mean, the research I've done suggests not. There are people out there a lot more dedicated to tracking this kind of thing than me, let's face it. And no one has said that's the case. But a little part of me will always believe it was. Mm -hmm. So, did you know... You probably knew this one. Indeed, probably (laughs) everyone did. Reading Digest is the Springfield (laughs) version of Reader's Digest. Yeah. A long-running American general interest magazine. Reading Digest's slogan, Brevity is dot 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 wit... (laughs) is an edited version of the phrase (laughs) brevity is the soul of wit as used ironically by the doddering tedious character of Polonius in William Shakespeare's play Hamlet Mm -hmm. as later portrayed by Chief Wigan in the Hamlet aping segment Do the Bard Man (laughs) in the non-Halloween anthology episode that is season 13, episode 14 Tales from the Public Domain Mm. the judging panel is made up of former Redskins great Alonzo Flowers perennial third-party candidate Wilson Defarge, set-up page Brad Fletcher, skincare consultant Rowena, (laughs) and wealthy gadabout Chilton Gaines. I believe all of these people are fictional. I only wanted to mention it because I often describe myself as a wealthy gadabout (laughs) since I have no marketable skills or achievements with which to associate myself. (laughs) And that is Mr. Lisa going to Washington and coming back again. Awesome. So where are we heading
0: next, Tom? Right, we're off to Dubrovnik. Ah, I'll yep. pack my jumper? Uh, cravat, maybe. Ah, OK. OK, so Dubrovnik, the Pearl of the Adriatic, a city on Croatia's Dalmatian coast. The old town is absolutely spectacularly, stunningly beautiful. I've been there twice. So parts of it date back to the Republic of Ragusa, which dates from the 7th century. Ooh. Napoleon built a fort there, it's called Fort Imperial, and it became a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1979. On October 1st, 1991, just five days after Mr. Lisa Goes to Washington first aired, tragedy struck the city when the forces of the Yugoslav People's Army laid siege to it, beginning the Siege of Dubrovnik. The siege would last for nearly eight months, causing the deaths of dozens on both sides. The events were part of the Croatian War of Independence, part of the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. And I haven't really taught much about the former Yugoslavia yet, which is a bit odd given how much it dominates the history of the 90s and noughties, with notable events being, of course, the Bosnian War and the Kosovo War. So for this episode, I thought I'd take a look at the geography and history of the former Yugoslavia, with a focus on Croatia and Dubrovnik in particular, all the way up to the siege... We'll certainly be revisiting the topic later, so I'll be saving most of the breakup of the former Yugoslavia till then. So, the geography. Let's start with the country that was to the west of Yugoslavia, that being Italy. And we all know where Italy is. It's the boot-shaped country at the bottom of Central Europe. The east coast of Italy is on the Adriatic Sea. At the northeast of Italy, it shares a border with the first of the former Yugoslav republics, Slovenia. Slovenia, whose capital city is the very easy to pronounce Ljubljana, was the northernmost of the former Yugoslav republics. It also shares a northern border with Austria and Hungary, and a southern border with Croatia. Now Croatia has a very odd shape. So it forms a crescent, with the northern part of it running along the border with Hungary, before stopping at Vojvodina, now part of Serbia. And I said Vojvodina first time, so I'm very happy with that. The western part of Croatia runs along the Adriatic coast and includes hundreds of small islands. Just before you reach the end of the Croatia coastline, you reach the city of Dubrovnik. So you have this very weird situation where a major, major city of Croatia is a long, long way from where the capital is. Long, long way from Zagreb.
1: Okay.
0: That is some interesting geography there. Honestly, it's really weird. So, yeah. Croatia completely envelops the western and northern border of Bosnia-Herzegovina, whose capital is Sarajevo. Bosnia also borders Serbia to the east and Montenegro to the southeast. It has a tiny sliver of the Adriatic coast around the town of Neum, with the border being just 12 miles wide. Once you've driven for the 12 miles through Bosnia from Croatia, you get to Montenegro, the smallest of the former Yugoslav states, but it does have the most extravagant flag, (laughs) with its capital of Podgorica. To the east of the rest of the former republics is Serbia, with its capital of Belgrade and disputed southern region of Kosovo. To the east of Serbia lie Romania and Bulgaria, two countries that are intertwined with Serbia's history. Obviously, we've already talked a fair bit about Romania, Ceausescu and all that. Yeah, seems a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So south of Kosovo is the landlocked and southernmost former Yugoslav Republic, that of Macedonia. Now Macedonia is a bit of an odd one. To the west of it is Albania, and that we have talked about before in episode 11, The Crepes of Lothar-Demisie. Though weirdly enough, it wasn't me talking about it. (laughs) To the south is Greece, and this is where some issues arise. The region of Greece that Macedonia borders is also called Macedonia. Now when it was part of Yugoslavia, it wasn't really an issue. As an independent country, however, things are very different. Since Macedonia became independent, it's been pushing for membership of NATO and the EU. Oh, uh, spoilers, by the way. (laughs) Trouble is, Greece is a member of both of these and has a veto. Since 1995, it used the name Former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, but that wasn't enough to placate Greece. So in 2018, they had a referendum and decided to settle the issue by adding North to their name. So it took 23 odd years to sort out the name dispute, and it's now the Republic of North Macedonia. So the history. If you know your First World War history, the names I've already mentioned should be ringing some bells. For centuries, Yugoslavia was between a rock and a hard place. The rock being the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the hard place being the Ottoman Empire. In 1914, Bosnia was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but neighbouring Serbia was an independent kingdom, having gained its independence from the Ottoman Empire. Serbia was under Ottoman rule for centuries until it gained de facto independence in 1867 after Ottoman troops left Belgrade. Its independence as the Principality of Serbia was internationally recognised in 1878 at the Congress of Berlin following the Russian victory over the Ottomans in the Russo-Turkish War. In 1882, after some significant expansion, Serbia upgraded itself from a Principality to a kingdom. That that can be how it works, but... uh, (laughs) Uh, That's how it works in this case. So in 1908, Austria-Hungary invaded Bosnia-Herzegovina and annexed it the day after Bulgaria declared independence from the Ottoman Empire. This enraged neighbouring Serbia and the resentment of it laid the foundations for the First World War. A few years later, on that fateful day of June 28, 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the next in line to the Austro-Hungarian throne, visited Sarajevo with his wife Sophie and they were both assassinated by Gavrilo Princip. This set off the chain of events which triggered the First World War, which was a total disaster for Serbia. The country was invaded by Austro-Hungary, Germany and Bulgaria and 135,000 Serbian troops were evacuated to the Greek island of Crete. At the end of the First World War, the Austro-Hungarian, Russian, and Ottoman empires were dissolved. And for the first time in a very long time, the Balkans had no major powers on their doorstep. The former occupied territories got together and formed the catchly titled Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. Yeah, that trips off the tongue. Yeah, it? yeah. With Peter I of Serbia becoming the monarch of the unified country, ruling from Belgrade. Later, the country renamed itself to the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. The name Yugoslav translates to Southern Slav, as the region is populated by Slavic peoples in the south, basically. From the get-go, the country was immersed in the political struggles of the time, namely communism, fascism and nationalism. On June 28, 1928, these tensions came to a head when a deputy from the People's Radical Party, Punisa Ratchic, shot and killed three members of the Croatian Peasant Party on the floor of the Yugoslav parliament. I mean, we're all used to parliamentary debates getting a bit heated, but this guy actually shot some, uh, you know, the equivalent of MPs. That's, uh, that's Central American stuff right there. Yeah, pretty much. The king at the time, Alexander I, responded to the killings by suspending the constitution and assuming dictatorial powers. And this is also when he renamed the country Yugoslavia. The aim of this was to quell nationalists and communists, but it didn't prevent the rise of the Ustasi a Croatian fascist organisation. The Ustasi played a role in the assassination of Alexander I, who was shot by a marksman while visiting Paris in 1934. His son, who was just 11 at the time, inherited the throne as King Peter II, with his cousin, Prince Paul, ruling as regent. In an attempt to keep Yugoslavia out of World War II, Prince Paul signed the Tripartite Pact, and this pact was primarily between Nazi Germany, Mussolini's Italy and Japan to cement the Axis alliance, but later on other countries joined it, including Yugoslavia. However, the move was incredibly unpopular in Yugoslavia, and just two days later Prince Paul was removed by the military in a coup d'etat. Paul was exiled, and the now 17-year-old Peter II was made king. With their new ally out of the way, the Axis powers launched an invasion and the Luftwaffe bombed Belgrade. They resisted for 11 days before surrendering, with 300,000 soldiers taken prisoner. Yugoslavia was carved up, with the Astasi put in control of Croatia. Throughout the course of the war, they killed up to half a million people, exiled a quarter of a million, and forced hundreds of thousands to convert to Catholicism. So, you know, really nasty stuff. Resistance to the fascists was strong and immediate. History remembers the communist-led partisans well, but there was another group, the Chetniks, who wanted to see the restoration of the monarchy. These groups were ideologically opposed, and as the Nazis retreated towards the end of the war, the two groups spent more time fighting each other than the forces of fascism. Once the Second World War was over, it was pretty clear that the partisans were in control. They numbered around 800,000, and were led by one Marshal Joseph Broz Tito. Ah ha ha! I haven't talked about Tito yet, but uh, he's a very, very important character. So Tito was a real strong man, and he would go on to dominate Yugoslav politics for the next 35 years. And the fact that Stalin and Tito didn't get on is well documented, but I thought it would be a good idea to see why. At the end of the Second World War, everyone was exhausted. Millions were dead, including around a million Yugoslavs, roughly one-fifteenth of the population. However, with Tito's partisans in control, they had a certain momentum to them. Tito wanted to capitalise on that and team up with other newly communist countries in the region and intervene in the Greek Civil War, which at the time was raging between the Kingdom of Greece and the Greek Communist Party. So, you know, very similar to what was going on in Yugoslavia. However, Stalin, not wanting to clash with the rest of the Allies, overruled him. Tito also wanted to take the city of Trieste at the time in northeast Italy, even going so far as to attack American aircraft. Yugoslavia was part of Cominform, the international communist organisation. Stalin was planning to haul Tito over the coals at the Cominform meeting of 1949, but Tito never showed up, causing Yugoslavia's expulsion. And I saw a great meme on Mostly From Sugar Packets about this. If you haven't checked out Mostly From Sugar Packets, you really should, because it's, it's Simpsons memes about history. It's brilliant. And someone did one of Stalin uh, beating the counter of a snack van, you know, the one that's outside the the protest, outside the nuclear plant. And he's going, where's Marshal Tito? Where's (laughs) Marshal Tito? It's genius. So this scuffle between Tito and Stalin even put the nations on the brink of war. Stalin believed that once it was obvious that Tito didn't have his support, his regime would collapse with Stalin quoted as saying, I will shake my little finger and there will be no more Tito. Ooh. However, this collapse didn't come, so Stalin resorted to trying to get Tito assassinated. This led to possibly... With a shake of his little finger? Uh, No. But this led to possibly the greatest piece of correspondence between two world leaders, with Tito writing to Stalin. (laughs) Stop sending people to kill me! We've already captured five of them, one of them with a bomb and another with a rifle. If you don't stop sending killers, I'll send one to Moscow and I won't have to send a second. Now that is some that is some comedy timing, that's some sass. I think it might have been spiced up a little bit in interpretation, but uh, I, I still think it's great. Hello Stalin, you are a stupid head. <laughs> is that you, Tito? <laughs> so of course, Tito never needed to send an assassin to Moscow as Stalin died in 1953 leaving Tito to practice his own version of communism in Yugoslavia. In the years after Stalin's death, Tito did a pretty good job of playing the West and East off against each other, receiving financial aid from both the Soviet Union and the USA via the Economic Cooperative Administration, the same government body that oversaw the Marshall Plan. And he was also a big player in what was known as the non-aligned movement. So there's this idea that you had to either be with the Soviet Union or the USA in the years after World War II. Mm. And he had this idea of you can have a third way, you can be non-aligned. Mm. And he was, he was pretty much a leader of that movement.
1: There's a great, uh, a great song by uh, Pera Ubu called Non-Alignment Pact, which is, is possibly one of my favourite um, favorite songs ever. Um, it kind of, um, kind of compares signing a non-alignment pact to a romantic relationship. Okay. Um, and yeah, I that was all the way to say there. Listen, listen to that if you haven't heard it before. But I won't put it on the playlist, because it came out in,
0: like, the 70s. OK, fair enough. So, in a way, Yugoslavia was a bit like a miniature Soviet Union. It was made up of several constituent republics, all consisting of various nationalities, ethnicities and religions. Tito held everything together by allowing each republic a certain degree of autonomy, combined with a fair bit of good old-fashioned political repression. While nowhere near the scale of Stalin's Soviet Union, Tito also had a gulag-style system where political opponents were imprisoned and sometimes killed. The Croatian island of Goli Otok was used as a labour camp for this purpose. So under Tito, Croatia was pretty stable, with a notable exception being the Croatian Spring of 1971. In the years preceding it, a movement had built up around Zagreb consisting of intellectuals who wanted to preserve and promote the Croatian language, This movement morphed into one that was also concerned with the political and economic situation in general. It came to a head in 1971, and the Yugoslav authorities arrested thousands, including the future Croatian president, Franjo Tudman. However, shortly after, in 1974, Tito authorised a new federal constitution, which gave Croatia more autonomy within the union and satisfied some of the demands of the protesters. What followed was a period known as the Croatian Silence, which lasted until 1989. Oh, OK. Which I think is a quite a poetic term. Basically, they weren't complaining, so they were silent. There you go. So Tito died in 1980. In the final years of his life, he developed circulation problems in his legs, and they became gangrenous. Doctors wanted to amputate them, but Tito was so stubborn that he said he'd shoot himself if they did. His stubbornness cost him his life, and he succumbed to his illness on the 4th of May 1980 at the age of, at the age of 87. With Tito out of the picture, Yugoslavia slowly began to disintegrate. There were riots in Kosovo, as ethnic Albanians sought to more closely align that part of the country with communist Albania. Yugoslavia took out huge loans from the IMF and soon racked up debts of billions of US dollars, shaking people's faith in the communist system. Nationalist voices came to the fore, and in 1986, a group of Serbian academics released the Sarnu Memorandum, claiming that Tito had set up Yugoslavia to privilege Croatia and weaken Serbia. The late 80s saw the rise to power of Slobodan Milosevic, and we'll certainly be hearing more about him in later episodes. Mm. He became the president of Serbia while it was still part of Yugoslavia in 1989, on the back of the so-called anti-bureaucratic revolution, where local government leaders in Vojvodina, Belgrade and Montenegro were forced to resign after mass protests. In 1990, the National Communist Party split, with each part of the party governing their respective republics. At an extraordinary congress of Yugoslav leaders in 1990, the leaders were split over the State of the Union. Slovenia and Croatia wanted independence, while Milosevic and other Serb leaders wanted the internal borders of Yugoslavia to be redrawn, so that all the Serbs could live in one place. Shortly afterwards, the first multi-party elections were held in Croatia. They resulted in victory for Franjo Tudzman's nationalist HDZ party, further adding to the civilian unrest. I have to say HD. I can't say HDZ. It just sounds wrong. Dick, you, you go for it. You know, we have American listeners. I'm sure the I'm sure yeah, Brits it's, will forgive this one. It's just Z is very British. Yeah. And it, and it's a Croatian... I can't say... Uh,
1: anyway. no, go, go for it, go for yeah. it. Lord knows, we, we've had so many sss sounds already <laughs> in this. Yeah. You know, And and you guys won't be able to hear this, but the amount of times Tom has had to edit me suffering suck my Mm, way through mm. this, you're just going to have to live with it, all right? You will live with it this once.
0: Okay. So, tensions between Serbs and Croats came to a head on May 13th, 1990, when a football match in Zagreb between Belgrade's... Here we go. Svěna Zvezda. Honestly, C-R-V-E-N-A. And Z-V-E-Z-D-A. I wouldn't even have tried it. Savena Vesda. Anyone speaks Serbian, please let me know if I've got that right. And Dinamo Zagreb. Oh, there we go. I know those. Yeah, you yeah, know that one. So that match had to be abandoned due to fighting between the fans. The HDZ party continued to make changes to the country, dropping the socialist part of the country's name and making moves towards independence. In response, the Serbs in the Croatian parliament boycotted it and Serbian paramilitaries, largely in the east of Croatia took over large areas, set up roadblocks, and declared the independence of a series of Serbian oblasts. Like in Russia, they have oblasts. Mm. They got together to form Serbian Krangina in what was known as the Log Revolution, because they cut down trees to make the roadblocks. Okay. Croatia held an independence referendum in May 1991, which, unsurprisingly, the Serbs boycotted. Over 90% voted for independence, and on June 25, 1991, Croatia declared itself independent from Yugoslavia the same day as Slovenia declared its independence. The two countries were told by the EEC that they would not recognise their independence for fear of civil war. To try and ease the tension, Croatia and Slovenia announced a three-month moratorium of their independence declarations, essentially suspending them. A day before the moratorium was due to expire... The Yugoslav Air Force, now pretty much run by Slobodan Milosevic's Serbia, decided to launch an airstrike against a Croatian parliament building. By this point, the Croatian War of Independence was well and truly on, if it wasn't on before. The UN tried to calm things with an arms embargo, which somewhat hampered the creation of the Croatian army. The conflicts in the former Yugoslavia gave us one of the ugliest terms of the late 20th century, ethnic cleansing. So following the end of the moratorium, Serbs in Kringina committed various atrocities against Croats, expelling many thousands. The Yugoslav army put a plan in place to take Dubrovnik, eliminating any potential Croatian threat to Bosnia-Herzegovina and Montenegro. Rema, Croatia is a very weird shape, and due to the way Croatia sort of snakes along the Adriatic coast, Dubrovnik is much closer to Bosnia and Montenegro than it is to the capital Zagreb. On October 1st, 1991, just five days after Mr. Lisa Goes to Washington first aired, the Yugoslav army's siege of Dubrovnik began. The aim, like the aim of most sieges, was to pummel the city into submission until it eventually surrendered. The army started shelling the city, while the air force took out the electricity and water supplies. Two weeks into the conflict, the Croatians approached the Montenegrin government rather than the Yugoslav government in an attempt to stop the siege. So this is important because the siege proceeded with Montenegro's permission, and the Croatians believed that they also had the power to call it off. Milosevic rebuked the Croatian offer on behalf of Montenegro, and Montenegro in turn therefore blamed Serbia for the attack. That's what happened in later years when they were trying to work out who was to blame. On October 23rd, the artillery bombardment of the city stepped up, causing a protest from the USA the very next day. In November, the Yugoslav army allowed a large convoy of humanitarian aid into the harbour, probably because the convoy contained some very important delegates, including observers from the EEC. The convoy also evacuated 2,000 people. A bombardment on the 6th of December brought further condemnation from the international community, as over 100 pieces of ordnance were aimed at the Straddon, the main boulevard of the old town. 13 civilians were killed, the worst day for civilian casualties of the whole siege. In addition, firefighters were targeted and the university library was destroyed, with over 20,000 volumes lost. The next day a ceasefire was agreed in january 1992 all sides signed up to the sarajevo accord and un peacekeepers were deployed to the region the yugoslav army pulled back from dubrovnik but fighting continued around the city the croatian army was greatly strengthened following the battle of the barracks where they took control of a large amount of yugoslav military equipment while fighting broke out in bosnia following their independence referendum in 1992 the Siege of Dubrovnik wasn't officially lifted until May 31st, ninety-two, when the Croatian army removed the Yugoslav army from their positions around Dubrovnik, taking the city out of their artillery range and restoring its access to the Adriatic Highway, making the city once again accessible by road. Of course, the siege was very damaging, with estimates of the damages being around $300 million. The historic Old Town suffered badly, with over 50% of buildings being hit in some way, and seven Baroque palaces being totally destroyed. As for human costs, it's estimated that 80 civilians died in the siege, which is pretty remarkable, given that it lasted for nearly eight months. The region also suffered from looting, with Yugoslav troops helping themselves to artwork from museums, fittings from hotels, and even equipment from the airport. Croatia's independence was recognized internationally after the siege, with some countries, including many European ones, recognizing it during the siege. So, like I say, as we go through the 90s, we'll certainly be revisiting the region, the events, and the people, And we'll certainly be finding more about one Slobodan Milosevic, so watch this space. Excellent. It's just a really weird one to talk about near the the end, because the Siege of Dubrovnik has a very definite start, but not such a definite end, because there was still fighting going on around the region in Bosnia. So it's quite hard to pin a date on exactly when everyone in it stopped. You you can say when um, you can say when the Yugoslav army stopped bombing it, that that's about it. I Read an interesting book once
1: about a um, uh, a journalist, a, either British or American, who actually uh, sort of snuck his way into Dubrovnik during the, the siege. Oh right. uh, Essentially to operate as a uh, an on the front lines journalist. And sort of got connected with a British paper in there and that kind of thing. But it was um, it was an interesting account of what it was like being there. I found the, found the journalist himself to be a little bit self-serving. Mm-hmm. Kind of like going, oh no, I was so traumatised by this thing that I deliberately ran towards. It's, yeah. Um, but you know, that that's just my opinion. So mm-hmm. There we go. Obviously, I try and find something to do with uh, Tom's story from The Simpsons. Um, mm. I just looked up Croatia Simpsons. Uh, and all I found was that it might have a curling team. Uh, uh, Winter yeah. Olympics one that we were talking about before. But funnily enough, I just want to mention this because it's something that both uh, both me and Tom had uh, assumed was the case, and mm. found out that was possibly not the case. Yeah, this um, is
0: very controversial, what we're going to talk about.
1: One of my absolute favourite one-off characters from The Simpsons is Crazy Vaclav, mm. from Crazy Vaclav's House of Automobiles uh, in the episode Mr. Plough. Mm. Um, you remember his classic, put it in H. Put it in H. Um, so when he, is, uh, when he is introducing Homer to the, his car, uh, that is from a country that no longer exists and goes 300 hectares on a single tank of kerosene, <laughs> um, he goes, take it for a test drive and you'll agree. And both me and Tom think the first word he says after that is Zagreb. Yeah. Uh, which would make sense if he's uh, if it's from a country that no longer exists, that it has a... Croatian stroke Yugoslavian uh, Mm. tinge to it we've looked this up on uh, Springfield Springfield which is uh, our favorite of the script sites and it just says speaking Slavic language
0: yes yes Um, it's meant to be unintelligible but it clearly it's clearly not he's clearly saying words yeah but I don't think anyone is quite sure about what he says um, i've seen the car described cuz it's cuz it's got a little b on it but it's that it's a british car that's well it it's a knockoff of a british car that would have been made somewhere in eastern europe but vaclav the most famous vaclav is vaclav havel who's the former president of czechoslovakia now in 1991 when this went out czechoslovakia still existed but it wasn't that far uh from the Velvet Divorce, where the Czech Republic and the Slovak Republic split up. OK. So Mr Plough probably would have got out
1: in late 92. Are we still oh. in the right oh, no, no, area there?
0: No, Mr Plough is... Oh, what season's Mr Plough? Season 4, episode 9. OK. But I don't have the date in front of me. OK. So that, ooh, that, that might have been just on the cusp then of when Czechoslovakia split up. This is very interesting.
1: (laughs) It was. I've just had to look this up live. This is an exclusive for you listeners. Uh, Me actually doing something. Hmm. Uh, November the 19th,
0: 1992. November 19th. Mr Plough. Hang on. Because it's further complicated by sports, I'm going to have to look up when Czechoslovakia split up. (laughs) Okay, so Czechoslovakia split up on the 1st of January 1993.
1: Oh, so actually, yeah, Mr Plough... And definitely would have been written and put together well before that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So,
0: so after all that, we're actually none the wiser. Well, the, the Velvet Divorce was very much planned, and it was called the Velvet Divorce because it was so uh, cordial. You know, there was no civil war or anything. It was just the two countries decided, hey, let's be separate countries. So it would have been announced probably roughly when Mr. Plough was broadcast. Okay, So they were probably very, very much on the ball and thinking, hey, is going to split up. Let's have a uh, one-off character who is named after the president of this country and let's have him make reference to the country not existing. All makes sense, I reckon. I'd certainly like to believe that was the case. So you know what? I'm going to. Yeah, yeah. So that has dispelled a myth for me because I thought he was Croatian because he was saying Zagreb. Hmm. Just for a little bit of research. I now believe he was meant to be from the Czech Republic.
1: Is this not Simpsons fandom in, in microcosm, essentially? Are we, not, are we not fantastic examples here of yeah. looking at a character that appears for maybe 25 seconds at the most Yes. and, and picking over every tiny
0: iota of that uh, appearance? Hang on a minute. Do, do, do we know who voiced him? I'm going to guess yes. Harry Shearer. Oh, oh, he's voiced by Hank Azaria, so... Hank Azaria, yeah, right. I should
1: have guessed that, really.
0: But I did not, so there we go. OK, so next question. Is Hank Azaria on Twitter? Almost certainly. Yes, he is. So, next thing to do, uh, tweet us him from a Retrospects Kiss account. Now, we now we do have a half-decent record because Yedley Smith has replied to us, so we will see if Hank Azaria replies to us. Excellent. That'll be something for the next
1: episode. And if he does, even if it is just to say, a wizard did it, you will, you will hear it here. Well, I would say first, but you'll hear it on the Twitter first.
0: Yeah. So there we go. Absolutely. So you've, seen, you've heard some live research and some live tweeting and, some, and far too much live waffling. So I think we'd better, we'd better wrap this one up. Yeah, that's definitely what the kids call live tweeting. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, yeah, I, I've heard that one. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't forget,
1: you can find us. Uh, don't forget Hank. Uh, you can find <laughs> us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. email us at podcast at and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. I should really tweet out the link to that again. If you like what we're doing please leave us a preferably five-star review any way you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Cheers everyone. Bye. Bye.